intellectual, political, and academic discourse in India in the post-independence period has been largely dominated and strangled by the left. This ideological edifice built on a hundred lies, an extreme intolerance of opposing points of view, is crumbling today as their lies stand exposed. The Indic school of thought, which is rooted in the ancient civilizational and cultural worldview of Bharat, is emerging stronger by the day. Indic Academy is one such attempt to consolidate all thinkers, writers, scholars, and activists who seek to preserve, protect, and promote Indic civilizational identity, thought, and values. You will be happy to know that chapters of the Indic Book Club are already active in cities like Delhi, Mumbai, Pune, Chennai, and Bangalore. I am proud to announce that our own Kvayantur is now joining this sacred Nyanya today with the launch of this Kvayantur chapter. The Indic Academy has also been providing uh, support, platforms, and networks to all Indic writers to encourage them to you know, deliver uh, and increase their output in the field of writing on Indian history, culture, and civilization. We have with us today two eminent Indic writers who have made a significant impact on our understanding of Indian history. Let me take this opportunity to welcome them. Sri Michel Dalino, who is a resident of Coimbatore, he is a well-known figure in the cultural circles of our city. He is a member of the Indian Council of Historical Research and he is the author of many books on Indian history and culture like The Invasion That Never Was and The Lost River on the Trails of Saraswati. I welcome you, sir. I call upon Ms. Archana to please do the honors. Present the bouquet to Michel Dalino and welcome him. Sanjeev Sanyaji, who is the main speaker for the day, is an Indian economist. Dr. P. Karnasabhapati is a well-known economist and has written several books on Indian economy. He is a Swati Rohit of the SNR Science Charitable Group. I am happy that the first event is starting uh, with the presence and with the participation of many uh, scholars, activists, intellectuals uh, of the elite circles of Kuala With this uh, brief introduction, I would like to uh, call upon our speakers for the day. Uh, here at the Koyamutra chapter, we have the guidance and mentorship of two eminent scholars, that is uh, Sri Michel Dalimo and Dr. Karagasabhati, who will guide us for all the future activities. I will request them to please uh, uh, start the program today with some opening remarks. First, I will request Michel Dalimo to please give his opening remarks. Thank you. Thank you for this introduction. Uh, I think Already, already know Sanjeev Sanyal sufficiently well. Uh, I need not introduce him on this book. In fact, he's going to do that. Uh, instead, what I wanted to very briefly um, discuss is why do we have people like Sanjeev Sanyal writing about history when he's supposed to do some banking work somewhere in Asia and uh, not this kind of books? Now, this is actually symptomatic of a certain situation prevailing in India. And uh, there are several reasons for this. Of course, um, the, the main reason is that there is a vacuum which was created in India for several reasons. And writers like Sanjeev come to fill this vacuum. The vacuum is first of all created by the way history is taught in school which puts off most
students of the topic altogether. And for their whole life, in fact, they don't want to hear about history anymore. So there is a problem with the way history is taught. And not only the syllabi, the, the, the curriculums, but also the pedagogy that is used uh, to stuff a number of dry, dead facts into the brains of our children. So this is, first of all, a, a, a huge uh, difficulty that uh, does not exist so much in Western countries where care is taken to uh, show the most stimulating, engaging aspects of history to the school children. I mean, broadly speaking. But there is also, as Pramod alluded to on the lead, a polarization. And we've had, especially in the last uh, 20, 30 years, schools of thought, if I may call them that, taking very uh, different positions which are ideologically influenced. So one, of course, is the leftist school of history, historiography, history writing, and they have been dominating the academia, dominating the media, dominating uh, the, the, the textbooks also. And they have portrayed a certain view of Indian civilization, which actually is, is far from flattering. Uh, this has been one end of the spectrum. At the other end, you find scholars who, let us say, have a uh, fairly crude portrait of uh, Indian civilization in the sense that they over-glorify it, they do not understand the complexities involved, and they actually do a disservice by trying to you know, build the lady, by trying to uh, portray ancient India as, as a place that had all knowledge and uh, all good things. So, in between, there are a lot of solid scholars and solid historians, but they do not communicate with the public at large. They do not communicate with the average Indian. So, we have this vacuum, and uh, this Indic Readers Club, Indic Academy, comes as an attempt fill this vacuum, because unless we can create a generation of new scholars, we will not succeed in occupying the space in this vacuum. And um, in fact, I keep receiving almost every day um, books and manuscripts to be uh, read and to be commented upon by, let us say, pro-Hindu or pro-Indian or nationalist uh, would-be writers on ancient India. And I am quite appalled by the kind of useless speculations, useless uh, intellectual uh, developments that, for example, people are uh, obsessed with ancient chronology. They want to prove that the Veda is not uh, three or 4,000 years old, but 7,000 years old, or maybe 25,000 years old. This is the latest uh, I've heard. And these kind of, um, or they want to prove that the Buddha was not born in 500 BC, but was born in 1800 BC. Or they want to prove that yesterday, I think, uh, that uh, Hinduism is on rigorous scientific foundations, as if it matters uh, that Hinduism should justify itself on foundations of science, um, and so on. So you have all kinds of wasteful intellectual activities uh, which need to be channel towards very serious study, the kind of which 
Sandeep's and the other has undertaken. And uh, this is why this uh, mission, and this is what I had discussed with Haruki Ramji, the founder of uh, the Indic Academy, uh, uh, towards the beginning of this attempt, that there has to be the creation of a new generation of scholars who can take on those established in the academic world on their own ground, on their own standing. Otherwise, we cannot, as amateurs, we cannot live in the field. And we will be simply producing some material from the margins, which may penetrate into the popular layers to some extent, but not in the academic world where ultimately everything ultimately is decided or at least managed. So this is uh, one of the important, and it is valid not only in history, it is valid in other fields of what we call Indian knowledge systems. We have a similar situation on history, in history of science, for example, history of ancient Indian mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, technologies, uh, where we have again the two extremes, uh, you know, the left scholars mostly in denial mode, and then at the other end of the spectrum, people who exaggerate who want to claim too much not really understand in fact what is at stake. So somewhere in between there is a vacuum to be filled, but it has to be filled with some solid scholarship. And at the same time, a gift with which people like Sanjeev luckily have a gift for stimulating the interest of the average lay reader, and that is extremely important. We have neglected the lay reader, the lay public in India. I remember as a child in France, there were actually several popular magazines of history. And the, the articles which were written were so stimulating, but they were written by professional historians. And those were glossy little magazines which you could buy at the street corner. We don't have anything like that in India today. So this is the vacuum which where we would like to position ourselves, and I hope that uh, this evening mission and even make a beginning. There are other attempts going on in India because as you know nature evolves vacuum. This is the, one of the laws of physics. So the vacuum is going to be filled but it is our responsibility to see that it is going to be genuine scholarship and material and not with you know, uh, spurious or let us say um, uh, debatable, vulnerable Thank you, Vishal, for setting the tone for the day. Now I call upon Dr. P. Karanjabhati to share his thoughts with us. Dear friends, I am extremely happy to be here this evening because we have been thinking of such an initiative for a long time in this wonderful group. So today it is happening in the presence of Sanjeev Sanyam and Sanjeev Sanyam and all of you. I am extremely happy. You know, it is unfortunate that a country like India with thousands of years of uh, civilizational background doesn't teach through history to the students, doesn't know history in a real history. This is a very important, uh, serious problem. Because Vaidyanathan from IIM Bangalore, one of the close friends, he used to say, you know, in every country there will be a speculation with regard to the future. But in India, there is speculation with regard to our past. We do not know what happened in the past. So this is a very serious problem. And as Michelzi was pointing out, it is not in the subject of 
history alone, it is the same problem in the history of economics or history of society, several other subjects. For example, if you see society, whatever Max Weber wrote in 1905, based on the European assumptions, still holds learning today in Indian circumstances, especially in Indian universities and among the intellectual circles. He said countries like India and China can never progress because this country is something different. People believe in karma and there are communities. In fact, these are the very same forces that are driving the Indian economy today and there is no discussion about it. And whatever Max Weber and uh, Karl Marx wrote about uh, economics, economics, for Europe. You know, we want to apply the same thing here. It cannot happen. As a result, in United Nations, in the 1950s, they admitted, they said that the culture, the culture, conditions of a country has to be destroyed for economic development to take place in United Nations. So they made such a kind of statement. Only very recently, after the economic collapse, global economic collapse in 2008, 2010, they revised their opinion and said culture plays a very, very important role in economics. So these are all very, very serious issues. Some of us who are uh, studying Indian economics and business to an extent, and some aspects of the society like communities, etc., we know here, we come to know here, that culture plays a very, very important role in economic development. And we have such a uh, very proud history in economics. You know, till Paul Bayro came into picture in 1980s in Europe. It was he who first said, you know, compared to 1750 and 1900, countries like uh, China and India were doing better. So that was the first time they said, you know, in the 18th century, India and China were much better than Europe. Then people started doing research, and of course, in 2001, Angus Madison came out with his book, which showed that. India remained as the most prosperous nation for 18% of the time in the last 2000 years. And now only we have started discussing about it. And this is a very, very serious issue, so we have to study history of economics, history of society, from our own nationalistic Indian Hindu perspectives. Otherwise, you know, you will be doing a great injustice to our future generation when India is coming up, emerging as an economy. We should know our background. Which is not there today in the Indian universities and the intellectuals do not discuss about it. And I want to add one more here, one more point here. It is not the history. Even the functioning systems, contemporary systems, we don't teach, we don't discuss about it. The functioning systems. For example, if you see, see Indian economy today, economic systems, what is driving our economic systems? You know, it is our family system, our culture, our savings habits, our community orientation entrepreneurial traits, these are driving our economic system. But have we ever studied this? Do we teach this? No, we do not teach. As a management teacher, economics teacher, I still teach only American European theories. I always say this, for example, uh, you know, from early 1980s to 1997, Nobel Prize in economics were given only to finance professors. So when we were all research students, we used to speculate in those days, who will get the Nobel Prize this year? So, Nobel Prizes were given only to finance professors. You know, in 1997, it was given to two people for one model called Black Scholes model, named after them, Black and Scholes process. This process, Black and Scholes, 
contributing this uh, prize award money, at that time it was about 3.5 crore Indian rupees. They did not keep quite like their predecessors. They thought when the whole world is using our black sports model and making money, why should we keep quiet? So they resigned their jobs and then joined a company called LTCM, Long Term Capital Management, promoted by economists and professors from the first time. So these two people became full time advisors. At that time, it was a very big issue because people expected, you know, a company, an investment company, uh, full time advised by two Nobel laureates and managed by economists and professors of management would give us uh, very good results. So everybody invested their money. First year results came and the results showed that the company lost 100 times what of its original investment. So Wall Street collapsed at that time because the Federal Reserve Bank which supported the Wall Street. Uh, otherwise, the market would have collapsed. So the people who developed the theory, they themselves could not practice it. You know, that's because it is based on false assumptions. And you will be surprised to know, even today we are teaching the same theory throughout the world. Even in America, India, everywhere it is. So even the present systems, functioning systems are based on European and American assumptions. It doesn't hold good here. You know, we have to develop our own study groups study all these things and then uh, develop Indian Indic theories, whether it is economics, management, business, etc. So one thing is about history and the second thing is about contemporary system. I think this will be a very good opportunity for five students to start this kind of uh, work uh, in the presence of Sanjay Sanjay Sanyal. We are beginning this work. Let us all join together to, towards this initiative Take steps. Thank you. I request Sri Sanjeev Sanyazi, our chief guest for the day, to deliver the inaugural address to mark the Indic Book Club Coimbatore chapter. Thank you very much. Uh, personally, thank the Indic Book Club for organizing a wonderful event, and to all of you for making time this evening uh, to come and uh, listen to me. Um, this is a project uh, that uh, is very dear to me because uh, I have <coughs> been involved in. Uh, of, uh, from its very inception, this project of taking reading, serious reading, out into India and basically taking the sort of Indian point of view and taking it seriously because while everybody can have a perspective in the world, so should Indians have a perspective about, of their own history. Because as the African saying goes, as long as the lions do not have their own storytellers, the history of the world will always glorify the hunter. So this is why it's very important that we understand ourselves. It does not mean that we become jingoistic about it. it. does not mean that we abandon evidence and begin to sort of, uh, glorify everything in the past. But based on evidence, based on reasonable scholarship, it is important for us to be able to tell our own story. So that is the voyage on which I, uh, I took off many years ago and the latest outcome of that uh, journey is a book that I'm going to speak about today. Uh, it's called The Ocean of Churn um, and it says how the Indian Ocean shaped human history. Uh, it's a, not a book specifically about India, let me clarify. Uh, it's about the Indian Ocean uh, and its shores. Um, and what I try to show through it 
is that how this ecosystem around the shores of this maritime space uh, was at the very heart of uh, world history, of human history from the very beginning. And of course, India, given its geographical position, um, played a very important part in it. Now, we as a species uh, evolved, as many of you will know, in East Africa, so on one side of the Indian Ocean. And some 65 to 70,000 years ago, one tribe from that hopped across from what is now Somaliland to Yemen and made its way up into the Persian Gulf area, which by the way, most of it was above water at that time because sea levels were much lower, where they began to increase in numbers. And at this very early stage, uh, it will be interesting to many of you to know, uh, they also mated with Neanderthals. So unless you happen to be from sub-Saharan Africa, everybody in this room has about 2 to 4 percent of your genes from Neanderthals. And then from there, waves of humans began to colonize the rest of the world. 40,000 years ago, one small group ended up in uh, Australia, and others spread uh, in, in many, many directions. And many great civilizations rose uh, and fell along the shores of this, of this uh, maritime space. Uh, of course, Indian civilization we have discussed, but also great civilizations in and around the Persian Gulf, including Iran. Uh, there were civilizations in Yemen. Uh, people now think that the Yemeni history really is an Islamic or Arab history, but in fact, uh, they have a very, very ancient history. Uh, going back um, to uh, a period uh, when they were trading with ancient uh, ancient Egypt. Uh, and there were tribes there, including one of them called the Saba, which led to the legend of the Queen of Sheba. And of course, in Southeast Asia, great empires rose and fell, uh, many of them heavily Indianized, which I will discuss later. So this has been at the center of human civilization for a long time. And it was so important that those people who were not part of this civilization, uh, of this uh, world, uh, were very keen to have something to do with it. And so the Chinese would send great voyages into the Indian Ocean to find ways of trading, occasionally geopolitically dominating this area. Uh, the discovery of the Americas, for example, was an unintended consequence of trying to find a way to this, to this uh, ocean. So this is a very important place, and in fact, except for the last 150 odd years, the economic and cultural history of the world is really the history of the Indian Ocean, and to a little lesser extent that of the Mediterranean. Now, of course, this is not the very first book written about the Indian Ocean. Many other books have also been written in the past. But there are major problems with how this story is told. And I will talk about two problems in particular. I call the first one the Western problem, or the Western sin, and the other one the Eastern sin. So what is the Western sin? This, is, this problem arises basically because almost all the books written about the Indian Ocean, with a few exceptions, are essentially written from a very Western perspective. As a result of which, what happens is they say basically all 
history books about the Indian Ocean start with Vasco da Gama discovering the Indian Ocean world. And it suddenly ends when the Europeans leave. As if we were not doing anything before they turned up, and we did nothing after they went away. Now, more recently, we are beginning to see that you know, a perfunctory chapter will be added in the beginning. Which basically says, yeah, yeah, they existed before, but you know, they were there growing spices for the trade with, again, with Europe. So again, the central theme is Europe and their need for spices, as if people living in and around the Indian Ocean world and didn't have an independent history and existence other than growing spices for the rest. And even that is very quickly told in one chapter about something about Arabs and trading and so on. There'll be almost nothing about the Cholas or the Pallavas or the Majapahit Empire of Southeast Asia and so on. It's completely perfunctorily set aside. Now this causes big skews in the way the world thinks about this part of the world and about India specifically. But in fact, this has now been going on for so long that we have ourselves imbibed this way of thinking. Let me give you one example. Now, this may be one audience which has actually heard of this gentleman called Martanda Verma. But in almost the rest of the country, nobody has heard of Martanda Verma and the rest of the world I will not even get into. And nobody will. But Martanda Verma was a very, very important person, not just in Indian history, but in world history. To understand this, you need to understand that in the early 18th century, the most important economic power on this planet was the Dutch East India Company. And essentially what they had done was they had taken over what is now Indonesia, they had taken over Southern Africa, they had taken over Sri Lanka, and the early 18th century they were attempting to take over the spice growing coast of uh, India, basically the Kerala coast. And it looked like it was inevitable that they would begin to dominate it when they came, came against this young king called Martanda Varma, who ran a very small kingdom called Bernard, which later became Travancore with a much bigger kingdom, but at that time it was a very, very tiny kingdom. And they fought a series of battles which ended in a major battle in a place called Kolachar, which is not far from here, incidentally, it's driveable distance from here, uh, towards Kanyakumar. And in that battle, he completely demolished the Dutch. And from that point on, the Dutch East India Company went into Line, and it opened up the space, of course, for the French and later on the English East India companies. Now, but for Martin Navarra, I would have been giving you this talk in Dutch. Just think about it. <laughs> Not just that. <clears throat> he turned in world history because from that, as I pointed out, the greatest commercial power in the world began to go into decline. Now, everywhere in the world, History books say that the very first time that an Asiatic power beat a Western power is in 1905 when the Japanese beat the Russians. Every history, modern history book in the world says this. Even Indian history books say this. But in fact, the very first time an Asiatic power beat a Western power was the Malayalis beating the Dutch. And yet, we ourselves have forgotten this. We don't even mention it in our history books. I mean, maybe in Kerala they are peace teach about Martin Navarma, but even there they do not quite understand the significance of this person. In fact, when I'm 
visited the place uh, uh, Kolachal during my research for this, I was shocked to find that there is a Vijay Stam which Markanda Varma had built at the place where this victory happened in Kolachal. And it was surrounded by garbage. There was a, a public urinal next to it. And it was a dump. The good news is that last year um, the Madras regiment has cleaned that place up. I have not seen it since, but at least in photographs it seems it's been cleaned. But it is shocking that one of the most important places in our history is simply being allowed to rot in that way. Largely because we ourselves do not recognize this. Which brings me to what I call is the Eastern sin. The Eastern sin is that you know, while it is all very good to blame the West and all of that kind of thing, the fact is we have been now free for 70 years. And every country that has become free, other than us, has essentially begun to rewritten history from their perspective. The exception to this is India. Not only has it retained many colonial era biases and so on, and you know, there's about foreign invasion theory, etc., which uh, Michelle is much better uh, able to explain. But it layered on that other layers like the Marxist biases, on top of that, the Nehruvian biases, and so on. But at least there is some debate about this. There is one bias which there is no debate about, which is the fact that almost all the history that is taught and uh, discussed in India is all told from the perspective of Delhi. Now, if you have grown up reading history books in India, you can learn about obscure dynasties like the Lodis, who, who ruled tiny kingdoms in and around Delhi. But you will not be taught about major empires like the Satvahanas, who ruled over the southern half of India for hundreds of years. You will not be taught anything about the Vijayanagar Empire, for example. But you may, some people at least know about this. In England worldview of Delhi means that the coastal history is completely left out. So I'll give you one example. Now, how many of you know anything about the history of Orissa? I can guarantee you, unless you happen to be from Orissa, you probably have know nothing. Yet Orissa has one of the most interesting maritime traditions anywhere in the world. They were, along with the Phoenicians, one of the great navigators of the ancient world. And you can go back to 6th, 7th century BC, the Uriya were experimenting with uh, sailing around the uh, eastern Indian Ocean very extensively. So, the area from between the westernmost uh, outlet of the Ganga, which is what we now call the Hooghly, to the area of Chilika Lake, that area, many excavations are now found, very early ports coming up uh, there. And these guys were sailing initially along the coast because they didn't have the technology to cross the sea initially. And they began to sail, some of them began to sail down south, down the coast, and began to visit Sri Lanka. And so many of them ended up settling in Sri Lanka that the majority population of Sri Lanka, the Sinhalese, are of Uriya Bengali origin. Just think about it, how interesting is that? They come from much further north and now, not that was, we have known this from their legends for a long time, but now genetic and linguistic data has also confirmed this. And on the other side, they kept sailing down along the coast, past Burma, 
to a place called the Isthmus of Kra. The Isthmus of Kra is a thin strip of land from which Malaysia hangs. It's a bit of Thailand, it's a thin strip of land. And once they reach there, they cross that thin strip of land onto the other side, into the Gulf of Thailand, and then sail again out towards the Mekong Delta, which is southern Vietnam, Cambodia area. Which is where the very first Indianized kingdoms began to form. That is why you may wonder why did the first Indianized kingdoms in Southeast Asia happen in Vietnam, which seems very far away in a map, and not in Indonesia, which is much more close. The reason is if you went along the coast and then crossed over from the Isthmus of Kra and sailed out towards China, that is where you would end up. Now, we do not know exactly how this process happened, but there is a fascinating legend which the uh, Cambodians and the Vietnamese have retained. And it is there repeated in all their inscriptions. So now we don't know if it's true, but it's worth telling the story because this is how they defined their own history. And it's possible that there is some truth in it. So the legend goes as follows. It seems that maybe in the 3rd, 4th century BC, we don't know exactly, an Indian merchant ship was sailing along the coast along the Mekong Delta. It had on board a Brahmin boy, handsome young man called Kondanyan. And they were sailing along when it was attacked by pirates. Now Kondanyan being a dashing young fellow organized his crew and they fought off the pirates. But what happened is that the ship developed a leak. So they had to take it onto the coast to repair it. When, again, they were surrounded on all sides by the local Naga tribe. And things looked very hope hopeless because they were surrounded on all sides. Then, just when the local Naga tribe looked like things were totally hopeless, the chief of the Naga tribe, who happened to be a woman, a princess called Soma, who saw Kondinya and fell in love. So, rather than attack this, the Indians, she proposed marriage. Now, I suppose Kondinya didn't have too much of a choice in the matter at this stage. But he accepted, and the two married, and they set up a dynasty. And the first Indianized kingdom called Funan was set up in that part as a result of this union. And there are various versions are giving one version of this legend, there are other versions of this legend. But the fact of the matter is that even a thousand years later, when the kingdom of Punan had gone into decline and you had other kingdoms like the Khmers, the Chams and so on, they would always trace their lineage back to this marriage. And it is also very interesting, you would trace it back to the female line, not to the male line. Because this was a matrilineal Lineage. Remember, Kondinya had become king by virtue of marrying a chief. So that lineage was a female lineage. And I have talked about this idea of a matrilineal uh, royal line uh, in my book quite extensively. But the point I am making to you is that this is an amazing legend. And it fits with some interesting facts as well. Let me give you one example. Now who is Kondinya? Now Kondinya is not a common first name. But it is the name of a Gotra. And where does this Gotra live? Even today, this Gotra lives in southern Odisha and Andhra coast. 
which is exactly from where these people were migrating all over. So isn't it fascinating that even today, the facts seem to fit together. Perhaps somebody from that coastline really went to Vietnam, married a local girl and set up a dynasty. So the point I'm making is that these legends are still alive in many, many ways. And to this day, it is remembered in many ways in the legends and thoughts of, uh, uh, and, and festivals of uh, our coastlines. Now, the Odisha, of course, the Odia, later on, of course, became much better at sea going and they began to cross the seas. They would sail down to Sri Lanka and go across to Sumatra, Java, Bali, and so on. And there were a great amount of trade that went back and forth. Some, people, you, some of you may already have heard about it. But what is interesting is that those ancient times, those that was trading that period, is so embedded in the culture of Odisha even today. So there is a festival which happens every year in mid. Uh, November called Kartik Purnima. Now Kartik Purnima is very interesting because the, fest the, the ritual of the festival is that before the sun rises, the women, particularly the women, the men also do it now, but basically the women go to a water body, a river or seashore or whatever, and they put a small boat with a lamp on the water. Now for a long time nobody knew what the significance of this is. Till modern times, people have begun to rediscover the meaning of it. And it is obvious once you, once I tell you what it is. Basically what it is, is a memory of the time when the sailors used to set sail to go off to Southeast Asia. And why does it happen when it does? Because in mid-November, the winds shift from blowing from the south, the shift and begin blowing from the north. So that is the time you get into your boats and sail down southwards towards Sri Lanka and then cross over across. That was until the wind shifted that direction. And there are many plays that are done. There's a play called the Tapoi play, which is a story about how people go away and merchants go away and what happens. There is also a fair that happens in Katak to this day, which is called Bali Jatra, which literally means the voyage to Bali. So just think about it, that 2000 years after all of these things were happening, if these traditions are still alive, this is not something theoretically that happened somewhere. And of course, this similar kind of trade was happening on our west coast as well. So Indians were trading um, from the Kerala, Karnataka coast out towards the Roman Empire. There were hundreds of ships going back and forth. And uh, Indo-Roman trade uh, was not just happening along the coast. Many of these goods would make their way inland and across to the other coast and then across all the way to Southeast Asia. And you will be interested to know, and some of you already perhaps know, that Coimbatore was a very important part of that trading route. Because the goods would land from the Romans onto the Kerala coast, and then they would come through from the Palarhat Gap. Uh, and then go along the Noel River, which sadly is now basically dead, but it would go along there all the way towards Thanjavur, which was the capital of the Cholas, and then go across further onto the other side to Mahabalipuram, Nagapatnam, and, all, and that coastline. And then some of these products would then be re exported out to um, Southeast Asia. So you find in places like Bali, Java, etc., you will find um, Roman goods, but they didn't come from directly from the Romans, it was the Indians trading through. So many of those products possibly passed right past this hall at some point in the far past. 
So this is in many ways the history of the notion of uh, us Indians and this reason I've called this the ocean of churn, of course it's an obvious uh, reference to Samadra Manthan, but it is also a reference to the fact that this Indian Ocean was the area in which you had all kinds of ideas, all kinds of goods, all kinds of people churning. Uh, Indian civilization is a result of this journey. Um, and while we of course exported out things, we also imported out, imported back many things from other parts of the world. Uh, without these imports of these ideas and other things, uh, we would not, Indian civilization would be much the poorer. So one of the things we need to remember, although we need to be proud of our past, we must remember the reason we should be proud of our past is because of our openness to ideas, to people from the rest of the world. I'm going to end by telling you the story of Nandi Varman II. Now, Nandi Varman II is an interesting character because he's one of the great kings of southern India. But far from being Dravidian, he was not even Indian, he was actually Cambodian. And <clears throat> to understand the story, you need to go back to the origin of the Pallavas. Now, there's always been a great amount of uh, speculation about who the Pallavas were. Uh, because the history, early history of southern India is all about three well-known uh, dynasties, the Cholas, Cheras, Pandyas. And suddenly in the 6th century or thereabouts, this random new bunch of dynasty turns up from somewhere called the Pallavas. And there is a lot of debate about, you know, some people think that they came from Persia and this and that. Now, if you go through their inscriptions and their stories and so on, they don't see, the Pallavas themselves don't seem to pay a great amount of attention to their male line. But their stories, several of the inscriptions mention a marriage to a Naga princess. And Indian historians don't give very much attention. They say, ah, must be from some, some, some island near Sri Lanka, probably somebody came. Nobody investigates this. So I have been doing some work in investigating this and I have come to the following conclusion which I talk about at length in my book that this Naga princess was very likely from Southeast Asia because the Naga people, the people of Khmer's and the people of that region called themselves the Naga people. We know for a fact that the Pallavas traded with them and it would fit in with the fact that the Naga lineage was a very important lineage in that part of the world and the Pallavas claimed that they got their royal status from marriage with a Naga princess. So the most obvious place for the Naga princess to have come from is Southeast Asia. But that wasn't the end of it. A couple of centuries later, the younger brother of a major Pallava king called Bhim, that Bhim decided to sail off to Southeast Asia. And then he married some princess and he stayed off there and he disappeared from the story. A century later, this is the early 8th century, the Pallava empire had a real crisis because the king had died and there was no male heir and the Pallavas were very very scared that the Chalukyas would take over their kingdom. So they had a council in Kanchi 
and somebody remembered, remember there was this prince Neil, 100 years ago he had gone off to Southeast Asia somewhere, maybe he's got, he'll try and get one of his lineage to come back and become the king. So they sent a delegation off and the delegation went there and discovered where the descendant of Neem was staying and found that he had four sons. They asked, will you give us one of your sons? So they asked the sons, and all of the sons, first three sons said, no, we don't want to go to some unknown place, you're taking us. But the youngest fellow, who was only 10 years old, agreed. So this delegation brought back this 10 year old, they crowned him as Nandi Varman II, and he then went on to become one of the most successful kings of southern India. Much of what you call Dravidian uh, temple architecture is derived from this person. But the fact is that for a hundred years, their family had been there and he was essentially Cambodian. Right? So, the point I'm making to you is that this give and take between India and Southeast Asia has a very long history. And it is not a one-way colonization as we Indians like sometimes to present it. It was a two-way process. Many of the things we think as quintessentially Indian are actually from there. Even the custom of having Pan and Supadi is of Southeast Asian origin. The Supadi plant uh, and, uh, is a Southeast Asian thing and even now you go into rural parts of Indonesia, Philippines, etc. people have Supadi and Pan. So we have imbibed many many things which we now think is quintessentially uh, Indian is actually from this interaction with the rest of the world. So with that I am going to stop but I am going before that let me read a very a uh, short section from the end of my book which will give you a flavor of the kind of book it is. While researching this book, I came across numerous instances of how the lives of ordinary individuals have been impacted by the churn of people and empires in the Indian Ocean. Take for instance the story of Budakkal Muhammad, who was born on 15th of August 1927 in Mundapalam, now in the state of Kerala. His family claimed descent from Yemeni merchants who had settled here in the 14th century. In 1942, when barely 15, he was thrown out of school for wearing a black badge in protest against the arrest of Mahatma Gandhi. Too scared of being scolded by his father for this, Muhammad decided to run away from home and eventually ended up in the Royal Indian Navy as an electrical artificer. The Second World War was raging at that time and Muhammad saw action on a number of occasions. And after the war he was posted in Bombay where he would participate in the naval revolt of 1946. When the mutiny was suppressed he was dismissed from the navy with a certificate that read discharged in disgrace from his majesty's service. Muhammad tore up the paper and flung it at the British officer. The following year India became independent on his 20th birthday. Since the mutineers were never reabsorbed into the navy, Muhammad tried his hand at many jobs before getting involved in the protests against Portuguese rule in Goa in 1955. He was arrested by the Portuguese and spent some time in prison before being released. And after several more adventures, including cycling across India, he became a tour guide in Agra at the Taj, where he met and married a Christian nurse called Mariamma on the 15th of August 1964. Decades later, he would return to his village in Kerala where he was living at the time that this book was written, 
I'm sorry, but he died before actually I could give him a copy of this book. Uh, but when I was writing these words, he was still alive. This extraordinary story was told to me by his son, Commodore Udakkal Johnson, as we hunted amidst torrential monsoon rain for an almost forgotten memorial for World War I sailors in Mumbai's port area. This book is concerned with the past, but the wheels of history roll relentlessly forward. What does the future hold? Even as I was completing this book, there were signs that the Indian Ocean may become the theater of a new geopolitical rivalry between India and China. Those who remember history will know that the Indian Ocean has seen the likes of Rajendra Chola and Jain Ha before. They will also expect the unexpected. After all, no one who saw Jain Ha's magnificent treasure fleet would have believed that a few decades later, a small country in the Iberian Peninsula would open up the Indian Ocean to centuries of European domination. If there is one lesson from history, it is this. Time devours the greatest of men and the mightiest of empires. Thank you. I'm happy to answer questions. So, one of the problems of looking into Indian history and trying to glorify it is that you find that significant bits of it are not quite as glorious as made out to be. Now, one of the characters of Indian history who is very much glorified even by the mainstream historians is, of course, Ashoka the Great. Now, because I was writing this book from a maritime perspective, I said, okay, so this is one character, you know, we hear about Ashoka, went to Kalinga, he <clears throat> carried out a massacre there, but then he felt very bad, he converted to Buddhism and became a pacifist. This is a story all of you have heard, I also heard. So I said, okay, let's find out what the Uriya think about this. So I went to investigate what evidence is there, and I found, interestingly, that there is virtually no evidence of his remorse. And in fact, I, once I began digging it up, I discovered that there is no evidence of him ever having become a pacifist. And in fact, far from being a great king, he was possibly the reason the modern empire collapsed. So what did I find out? Now, the beginning part of it is, I think, by and large agreed by everybody, which is that in the beginning, Ashoka usurped the throne. He was not the designated uh, uh, crown prince, he usurped the throne, he killed the designated uh, crown prince, but he also killed pretty much all the other male members of his family and some many of the major main ministers of the government. And having done that, he basically carried out massacres against anybody who opposed him. Now this part is agreed by everybody. Then the story goes that he then invaded Kalinga, where he carried out a massacre and, as I said, he then becomes a Buddhist and a pacifist. Now, interestingly, there is no evidence at all of him having become a Buddhist because of this. In fact, the evidence clearly suggests that he was a Buddhist already when he carried out his attack on Kalinga. This is there in an inscription, but also all Buddhist texts, or rather, no Buddhist text, uh, suggest any link to Kalinga and his conversion to Buddhism. There are many other stories, but never any link to uh, 
Um, so it seems, by all accounts, that he was a Buddhist by the time he invaded Kalimantan. Then, having carried out the massacre, you would think that if he is feeling so sorry about and regretful, that the one people to whom he would be expressing his regret would be the Uriya. But in fact, if you go to Odisha and check out every one of his edicts in Odisha, it's quite amazing, not a single word of regret is ever mentioned. His so-called regret is mentioned in an edict, which is very far away from Odisha, but the main one is now in Pakistan. So I decided, okay, let's, I can't visit Pakistan, but at least let me read the edict properly. So I read it. Now, yes, there is a paragraph indeed, which is recreated in all your textbooks about how, you know, he felt regretful and so on about the massacre carried out in Kalinga. But in the very next paragraph, he basically says something to the effect, You forest tribes, notwithstanding the regret I feel for what I did to the people in Kalinga, if you behave badly, I will do the same thing to you. Now, if you think that is a pacifist, then I don't know what to say. Now that is also not there. Then I began to look at what are the books that mainstream historians use to, you know, other than the inscription, there must be some because they've got a long history, the whole thick books, whole serials are now being done on. So what is the source of all of this? And I discovered a lot of it comes from a Sri Lankan text, Buddhist text called the Ashoka Vada, which is basically quite a eulogistic text. And in that text, it clearly mentions uh, several massacres that Ashoka carried out well after Kalinga, including one of a sect called the Ajivikas, which are not quite around anymore. But there is one episode in Bengal where he carried out 18,000 Ajivikas were massacred. Then there is another episode where he carried out major massacre of Jains. And not just that, it is very proudly written in the, that text you know, and highlighted in that text. Now the fact is that whenever I bring this up with a mainstream historian, says no, 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 you know this bit was inserted into the text by fundamentalist Buddhists at later times. Really? How do you know which bit? Why not put the same skepticism to the whole text? If you do that, then Ashoka's greatness suddenly begins to annoy him. In fact, we know for a fact that while he was still alive, his empire slowly began to crumble. And that by the time he died, there were serious fiscal military problems happening in his empire. And just after his death, the Mauryans lost a large part of their empire to the Satvanas in the south and the Indo Greeks in the northwest. Even more interestingly, Kalinga seceded as well. And about a generation or two after, Ashoka, there was a king called Kharada. Again, not many people outside of Odisha have ever heard of him. But he was a major king. Because he has left us an inscription at a place called Hathi Bumpa, where he mentions that, that he went to, he, he took his army up north to uh, Pataliputra and sacked Pataliputra and made the king, the Mauryan, last Mauryan king, bow to him. And not only that, he then came back to Bhuvaneshwar, his capital was Kalinganagar, which was near Bhuvaneshwar, modern Bhuvaneshwar, and on a hill just outside Bhuvaneshwar called Chandragiri, he puts this Hathi Gumpa 
inscription where he clearly says, I, Karavela, went to Magad. I sacked Pataliputra. I made the king of Pataliputra bow down to me. I brought back the Jain idols that they had taken from us. And he places this on this temple, uh, on this uh, on this hill. But if you visit the hill, you'll see something very interesting. When you climb up to the hill and stand in front of where the inscription, Hathi Gumpa inscription is, and you just look across, you'll see another hill. And that hill is called Bholi. And in Bholi, there is an Ashokan inscription. So it's very clear what is happening. Basically, Kharavala is telling Ashoka that we, Uriya, did not forget what you did to us. I went to Pataliputra. I destroyed your empire. I made your descendant bow to me. So, this is really the history of Ashoka. At least the evidence, this is what it suggests. Now, if you, I mean, uh, and so far, whenever I bring this up in mainstream historians, as I said, they try to fudge it by saying, oh, you know, but this, that, or they say it's a tricky issue. And, and if it's such a tricky issue, why is it there in such glowing terms in our textbooks? Yeah, so I hope that answers your question. Please be informed that the ocean and all the books authored by Sanjeevji are on display in the refreshments room. Before you leave the video, please take a few minutes to browse through the books. Thank you. Over to questions, please. What was the need to glorify Ashoka? Okay. This is speculative, but I think I have a pretty good fix on this. But, you know, it's my opinion, so take it uh, as you can. You see, Ashoka is not considered a great king in the Indian tradition at all. He was actually almost forgotten. He's there in the king list in the Puranas, but that's pretty much it. His rediscovery happened basically with Prince Ivan and basically the British uh, rediscovered him. But his elevation to becoming Ashoka the Great is the early 20th century phenomenon. So what is this all about? So it turns out that basically in the, early, in the 1920s and 30s, it became pretty obvious that India was going to become free at some point in the not too distant future. And the young political leaders of that time, like Jawaharlal Nehru, etc., were attempting to create a lineage for their pet ideologies. Now, the obvious place to look for this lineage was Chanakya's Arthashastra, which, by the way, had very recently been translated at that time. But there was a problem. The problem was that Chanakya just does not lend himself to socialism. He's clearly about rule of law. He's clearly about, uh, you know, he's anything but a welfareist. Let me see. He's, he's all about a small but limited state, a strong but limited state. So, what the Nehruvians did was basically they hunted around and they found this character, Ashoka, who had been recently pulled out of history. And they read his edicts. And in that, in those edicts, Ashoka says many sweet nothings. In fact, he clearly says that I have instituted something called the Dhamma Mahamantas, who I have going to put to look after my people, just like parents hand over their children to a nanny. I will ask the I am handing over the welfare of my people to the Dharma Mahamantas. Now my view of Dharma Mahantas is religious beliefs. That's what its translation should be. But at that time, the thinking was that you know an interventionist welfare state was a good thing. 
But my reading of what those good things were is to me at least pretty horrifying. Because basically the so-called welfareist things that Ashoka says are things like, you know, you will not eat fish on the third day of this and the fifth day of something. And you will not castrate the bull on the second day and the fifth day of this and this and that. Now really the bull really doesn't care when he gets castrated, frankly. This is a great amount of interventionism, which of course socialists love. And of course he's describing an end state. So basically what happened is that Ashoka, uh, Nehru adopted Ashoka to create a lineage first. In fact, he does this quite blatantly, even fact, in fact, in fact, one of Indira Gandhi's names is Priyadarshini, is a derivation from Priyadarshini, Ashoka's name, and he says in many ways that, you know, and so basically Ashoka was then taken out and created as this proto-socialist in ancient times. And so everything bad that he did was quietly brushed under the carpet. So that is the origin of Ashoka the Great. I think there's a gentleman there with the mic and Thank you for throwing light on many things uh, which I had no intuition. So thank you for that. Uh, uh, one of the things on the uh, Persian Gulf and then the moving out wing areas into Europe and back to the Indian Ocean. Uh, one of the places I read or heard about uh, probably from uh, Mr. Sri that uh, on the linguistic basis uh, when he refuted that innovation was that Based on linguistics, we come to know that a lot of proto-Sanskrit uh, things have actually moved from India and has become the basis for the names of the rivers and animals out there in Europe. So, I'm uh, just wondering whether if it has moved away from India or was it from Persian Gulf and Moonlight also, if you could go So, I, I have a somewhat completely different view of this. You see, uh, during the last ice age, there was basically nobody living in Central Asia. So it was just too cold. And human beings have basically withdrawn down into what is called the warm refuges. In Europe, they've moved down into Italy, down south, and so on. In this part of the world, these Neolithic, and remember, these are not civilizational, these are small Neolithic, uh, Paleolithic bands, in fact, um, who had moved down uh, south. And they lived along what I called as the Indo-Iranian continuum. See, the reason you think of Iran, the, the Persian Gulf area and the Indian subcontinent as being separate cultural and zones is because of Balochistan, which was not dry through much of history, it was wet. So people were going back and forth, ancient migrations happened. And so this was basically one continuum with more kinds of migrations happening, going back and forth, including cultural migration, uh, human migration, and all trade and so on were going on. Michelle uh, uh, and I were discussing earlier about trade groups and so on, uh, which were very much there. Um, and this kind of condition remained well into uh, the Bronze Age, uh, one of the westernmost Harappan um, uh, sites is in what is now the Balochistan, i.e. Pakistan, Iranian border today. And just a couple of hundred kilometers further out is a major Bronze Age civilization called the Giraft. So these people were clearly trading, they had lots of influences, they were possibly the same people going back and forth, there was genetic exchange. 
So the way I think about it is that this was some sort of a continuum. Migrations were going back and forth perhaps, some outward, some inward, but to think of them as, um, you know, you, I think it's perhaps wrong to think of this as, you know, one person and they all go outward. No, they were migrating back and forth, these were Neolithic bands moving back and forth. Some people settled here, somebody, so basically one brother settled here, his cousin went the other way, settled somewhere there and so on. So this was a continuum with all kinds of exchange which continued well into the Bronze Age from Neolithic times onwards, so for thousands of years. And that, in my view at least, is the origin of the cultural links between Eastern Iran, not Western Iran, which has in early period a separate history, but Eastern Iran and the North, uh, uh, and North India. And as I said, basically they were the same people. And the only reason we now think of them is separate is because of Balochistan suddenly became dry, when also Saraswati became dry, and the other things became dry around 1000 BC. Uh, but if this was Balochistan as possible, well, they're right next to each other, it's pretty obvious. You don't need to go into Central Asia to have a link with each other, they're right next to each other. And I believe they also, other than the land routes, they had significant maritime links also, ships going back and forth as well. So that's, that's the origin in my view of these links and there is some genetic but a lot of archaeological findings, Giraffe civilization was only discovered in the last 20 years and it's only very recently started being found out. It better fits the genetic data than many other theories. I'm not a great one for linguistics because I feel that linguistics is, a lot of linguistics is a case of uh, confusing correlation with causation and many much of the arguments can flow both ways. So I am not a great fan of linguistics but I prefer consequently texts which again don't mention any Aryan invasion or anything but they do mention tribes which seem to have something to do with each other. So for example the Parasars are mentioned and this is the name the you know uh, it's quite possibly the, uh, a name that was used for the Persians who may have lived in that Jirof area. So there are other things that, which I have documented more clearly in my book. But basically the point I am making is that the links between um, uh, the Indians and, and the Eastern Iranians um, is uh, possibly from that a shared genetic cultural uh, milieu that may be very very old, you know, Neolithic in origin. regard to the Mauryan Empire in Persia. Uh, is it true that uh, Chandragupta Maurya had a non-aggressive pact with the Kalingan Kingdom in order to secure the Nanda Empire for 60 years and also rights to get elephants for his war? There is no clear evidence of anything uh, in Kalinga vis-a-vis uh, -vis Chandragupta Maurya. No, nothing at all. There is no, no evidence at all. All we know <coughs> is that Chandragupta must have had some relationship and this is completely speculative but having created this massive empire he for whatever reason left uh, Kalinga alone there was no evidence of invading or doing anything bad there. now for an aggressive empire like uh, uh, the um, Chandragupta it means one of two things either they were allies or that it was already a part of the empire 
And the reason for that, and the, that the latter may be the case, is because Kharavela, in his uh, one of his uh, in his edict, mentions a certain canal that he repairs, which had been built at the time of the Nandas, suggesting that the Nandas had already taken. So I mean, he also mentioned some Jain idols that the Nandas had taken away, which he brings back. Uh, so, giving the sense that potentially uh, it was already a part of an empire that Chandragupta had taken over when he took over the Nanda Empire. Although there is a dissenting group who think that the term Nanda is possibly used for Chandragupta himself because one line of thought is that Chandragupta was an illegitimate son of the Nanda. So, in which case it was seen as a continuation. But I don't know. We don't know for sure. But it is the case that there seems to have. The likeliest out thing is that he probably took over, uh, uh, Kalinga was a part of the Mauryan Empire. So the question arises why did Ashoka invade it? And my guess is that uh, during the violence and chaos of Ashoka's usurpation, it either declared itself independent or it sided with the losing side. speculation, so take many pinches of salt. What makes a strategist from uh, Deutsche Bank with a high-flying career and get into history and uh, after two or three years of his journey, any regrets? No, no, I live all my life continuously simultaneously. So when people ask me, have you gave up being a finance and economics person, became a historian, I said, no, no, no. I'm still an economist, I just added something more to my portfolio. <laughs> I also incidentally design cities. People don't realize this. Uh, and the reason I live, think like this, I think is important because in my own view, uh, it is makes, knowledge is not separated into categories. It is we for pedagogical and other convenience reasons divide knowledge into economics, geography, history, and so on. But in fact, the world does not function like that. Politics affects economics, economics affects politics, history affects geography, geography affects history, uh, and all of these factors affect each other all the time. So in my head, none of this is separated into separate buckets. And that is why when you read my books, uh, whether you read The Land of Seven Rivers, this, or you know, Indian Renaissance, or etc., you will see one of the things I do continuously skip between uh, all kinds of different fields all the time. Uh, you know, I talk genetics and the next breath I'm talking about urban design and evolution of a city. Um, Land of Seven Rivers has extensively documented the evolution of Delhi, for example. Here I have talked a little bit about Bombay and some of the other cities that along the, uh, or Singapore and so on. So, urban evolution, that comes from my background in urban design. Um, I talk about economics very extensively. Uh, I talk about geopolitics quite extensively, both of which are important in my life as a financier because my job is to think about risks and opportunities that arise out of current affairs. Um, and so, in my head, they are not separated at all. And, uh, you know, I have done this in the past. I, mean, I wrote Land of Seven Rivers, but I took two years off from finance to write that. I've taken time off since last year to write this. Uh, it's not obvious to me what I will be doing next year. Any other questions? Are you 
given a thought of linking Chola dynasty to that voyage to Singapore, Thailand, and all this. Yes, uh, my book talks extensively about this, not just about the voyage. And here you will find, you will see why it's important to think about the wider history and the context because. Even when these Chola voyages are talked about in India, we say that you know one day Rajendra, the impression you get is that one day Rajendra Chola got up with the fleet and just went off and raided this poor chap there for no particular reason. And that's the end of the matter, and we feel very happy. Yes, see, we did a naval raid. Now, no responsible king of any kind is going to carry out such a major expedition unless he has a serious reason for it. But nobody in India bothers to read about the history of Southeast Asia to understand why, what is going on. So, because I live in Southeast Asia, I began to read up the Southeast Asian and Chinese history to understand this. And the history of this is very interesting. So, in the first decade of the 11th century, uh, this is what happens is that there is severe rivalry between the Javans and the Sumatran. Why does this happen? It happens because, you see, the world trade at that time was about trade between the Fatimids of Egypt, the Cholas of southern India, and the Song Empire of China. That was the economic highway of, of that time. A lot of trade was going back and forth, a lot of money was being made, and so on. And there were two trade routes for getting to China from India. One was through what is called the Malacca Straits, which is between Sumatra and the Malay Peninsula. And the other is through the Sunda Strait, which is between Sumatra and the island of Java. Now, historically, the Srivijaya kingdom of Sumatra controlled the Malacca Straits, and whatever happened to be the kingdom in Java controlled the Sunda Strait. Now, what happened in this first or second early part of the 11th century was that the Javans did a series of major attacks on the Srivijaya of Sumatra. So the Srivijaya basically entered into a pact with the Song dynasty in China, who backed this. And using this backing of the Chinese, the Srivijaya basically pushed the, the Javanese not only out of the Malacca Strait, but also out of the Sunda Strait. So now, all of a sudden, they controlled both the trade routes. And what they did is, using their control over both the trade routes, they began to impose heavy tariffs. Now, this seems to have irked the Indians. And the most likely reason why this raid was carried out by the Cholas was basically in retaliation against these heavy tariffs that were being imposed by the Srivijaya on Indian ships going to China. So, this big fleet set off from Nagapatnam made its way across, most likely route from what we can tell from the copper plates. Again, it's a bit guesswork, but this seems to be the best guess. The went across to Sumatra, went down south through the Sunda Strait, and then up the Malacca Strait, basically burning uh, Sumatran ports up and down the coast, till they finally met the main Sumatran army in the uh, main Shivajaya army in what is now northern Malaysia, a place called Kadara, which is now called Kida. And there the main Sumatran uh, army was completely destroyed. And then the ships came back. There was a secondary raid made a few years later as well. But this was the main raid. And after that, the trade seems to have opened up again. What is interesting is what the Chinese did. They did absolutely nothing. 
suggesting that the Chola and the Chinese have actually had a pact, some sort of an understanding because a few years later, we find that the Chola and the Sri Vijaya sent a joint embassy to uh, China. Uh, so, obviously there was some sort of an understanding going on. Thank you.